realize that's off. All right, good evening. We're in the book of Romans, and we are uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8 tonight. So we're moving through here in our study, and the title of tonight's message is Bodybuilding. So if you want to know more about bodybuilding, stick around. How about that? All right, Uh, let's begin by reading our text tonight, and we'll come back to uh, this and comment here. Paul writes, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having the then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Uh, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful. We're thankful tonight that we can come here in this warm building and we can gather here in in your presence. And thank you, Lord, for each that is here. Thank you for the members here of the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to stir up our gifts among ourselves and not for our glory, but for yours. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would just show us uh, areas where we have strengths and weaknesses and help us to know who we are in Christ, and more than that, that we'd know who he is and, and, and stand in his shadow. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sometimes, actually, if you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll look and there's a whole section on uh, church, like leadership development and how to have a successful ministry, that kind of classification of things. And there's volumes of books out there. And it seems like everybody that has a so-called great ministry or great church has, has written a book or something. And sometimes I wonder, does that make your ministry great just by writing a book? And I guess the, the short answer is no, it doesn't. And, but I back it up even further and ask, what really is a great church? You know, what is it? And sometimes in our mind, we have certain thoughts about that. You know, we say, well, it must be, you know, sort of proportional to size, Certainly a large church of many people must be a great church, right? Well, uh, it's interesting, the Bible really doesn't touch on size anywhere. You know, when you look through the epistles that Paul wrote and Peter wrote and John and others, and when Jesus talks about building his church, he doesn't really talk about, you know, numeric size. And instead, they deal with issues of the heart and character and giftings and and reaching out into far corners of the world. And as we've been going through the, the study in First Peter on Sunday morning, uh, as you know, Peter's writing to uh, churches that are scattered abroad. And they were probably very small congregations in comparison to what we would call megachurches today. Certainly there were uh, large movements in church history where thousands got saved. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And uh, that first day, 3,000 people added to the church. Uh, becoming the body of Christ. Really, that was when the church started there in Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost and the prophecy concerning Pentecost was fully come, as the scripture says. We could say maybe it's that, or maybe it's the amount of ministries that they have. 
Certainly, uh, as I look around and, and I, I think of our own work here, we have lots of different ministries. I had a guy ask me the other day, you know, what do you guys do? And he was kind of asking, what do I do? You know, and some of you wonder probably what does he do also. But, you know, I started thinking and I, I listed off a few things of uh, ministries that we have and what we're involved in. And there's a lot. There's a lot that are, some of them are scheduled things, some of them aren't. Some of them are just those of you that go and visit and you do whatever and all that. And uh, that doesn't necessarily make a great church, though, as far as in scope or in bigness or greatness in the eyes of God, necessarily. We can be very busy in ministry and not necessarily be doing it for right motives, right? I mean, that's very possible. And, you know, some will say, well, it must be the way the Lord's blessed us monetarily, right? Certainly if he's blessed you. And I remember years ago in Ukraine, I was talking to a guy who was there, a Christian fellow, and uh, a large sum of money had come in for a church building project. And, and he said, God must be uh, favoring us. And I said, yes, he is. And he says, and, and certainly that shows God is blessing us. And I, uh, I stopped him right there. And I said, well, it's yes. Sometimes money is a direct proportion, certainly of God's blessing. That is true. But it does not necessarily mean that it's God's stamp of endorsement on us. All right, uh, There are people who are natural fundraisers and they can go out and raise money for anything. right? And uh, they, can, they can go out and, and do that. And I mean, we, do, we see that all the time. The world has all kinds of fundraising that goes on and those kind of things. And so that doesn't necessarily make a church great just because people are giving. But it certainly is ind- indicative of what is at going on at the heart level um, often in that and all those things sometimes are a picture of what is going on you know as people disappear from a church you have to ask why <laughs> okay what's going on is it persecution are they moving away is it just they don't like it anymore whatever there's those kind of things and we have to ask those questions but the the better question perhaps to ask is are you know what is a healthy church not a great church but a healthy church or a healthy ministry and really what paul talks on, or touches on here he touches on some of those principles of what makes a healthy uh, local fellowship, a body, and also universally the body of Christ and individually as Christians, right? He's just dealt with in Romans 12, 1 and 2, our service to him and presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. And he's talking about that as individuals, but really individuals who are consecrated to God, Christians who are sold out to him, make up the body of Christ and and that's a healthy thing, isn't it? And we ought to be engaged in those things. And the first thing, really, there are, um, there are three essential qualities to, the, to a healthy church. And the first one is found right here in verse 3. He says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, what Paul is saying here is that we need to, number one, take an honest evaluation of that. I remember years ago uh, when I was serving in the fire department down in central Maine, um, we used to have these after-action reviews after every call, okay? We would sit down, maybe it might be the next day, it would be usually within a week, and we would hash out what we did right and what we did wrong. And more often than not, we always did things right, you know. We'd look around the table and everybody would say, well, I think this went well, that went well, this went well. And then, and then our chief would have to say, well, what did we do wrong? And that was always harder. It was harder to stop and say, 
well, you know, chief, you were standing in a road when you shouldn't have been, or you were doing this, or, you know, you were doing that, or Jack, you did this, or you said that, and that's confused. And we would start hashing things out. It was good in that there weren't any, I really believe there wasn't any motivation to get people mad or anything like that, and we didn't get that way, but it helped us improve every time. And our chief used to say this, if you always evaluate yourself by yourself, you always look good, you know? And so every now and again, we'd have somebody come in from outside and say, how did we do? And it wasn't always a good review, you know? And, and you had areas you had to train in and those kind of things. And the reality is this, it doesn't matter what occupation you are. I think as a Christian, we have to stop and make an honest evaluation of how am I doing? You know, if I ask you as you're coming through the door, well, some of you are honest and will tell me, you know, that you're, <laughs> the problems that you're facing. But sometimes I, I'm guilty of this. Somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, great. And probably I just had an argument with my wife or, you know, those kind of things. And you, you're not really doing great. And yet we say those things. And are we? Are we healthy? Are our relationships good? Particularly the relationship with the Lord. He starts here by talking about really knowing our true self in comparison to God. Okay, and that's what he's talking about here. He says um, that he says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's humility. And we live in a world where everybody wants to be a celebrity and everybody can be a celebrity and sometimes very for bad reasons, right? Real quick. And today, you know, the latest viral video or something like that. And people are always looking for those kind of things. And, and, and the reality, we are, we are very weak vessels. And sometimes God reminds us of that very clearly through trials and other things. But sometimes as Christians, we we get to the point, and I'm saying this as a pastor, that we think, boy, I must be doing something right. I must be good, you know? Uh, I think it was Harry Ironside when he was, uh, he was a very well-known preacher. He was, uh, you know, ministering all over the world. Uh, he was in Chicago, and he was convicted of his lack of humility. And so he confided in a friend, and his friend said, well, I have a perfect solution for you. He said, I want you to get a sandwich board. You know, that's one of those boards you hang on either side of you. And, and you're going to have Bible verses on it. And I want you to walk the streets of Chicago and announce the Bible verses. And boy, that was quite a humbling thing. But he did. He went out and he did that. And his friend said, well, how did it go? And he says, well, I doubt there's another person out there that would do that. <laughs> you, get, you get the attitude, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's kind of sometimes the way we feel. I think he was doing it tongue in cheek. But that is, that is sometimes what we think. Even in our humble actions, we take pride in it. Paul simply says this, know your weakness. Know really where you stand. It doesn't mean we grovel around in the dust and, and say, oh, Lord, you know, I'm so unworthy. I just don't know, you know. And defeated is what that is. But then he goes on to this. He says, "For he says, but to think soberly, soberly. That word soberly means just that, that not being controlled by something else. And I think in the heart of that, if you think comparison, the opposite of humility is, is what? Pride, yeah. And sometimes people can be drunk with pride, right? I mean, it happens all over the place. Sometimes Christians can be drunk with pride. Sometimes Christian leaders can be drunk with pride and do some very foolish things and make absolute idiots of themselves because uh, pride has gotten in the way. Paul says, take a sober look at your life. 
and who you are. And as God has dealt to each one in a measure of faith, okay, it, it, it goes back to compare ourselves to who God is. And I think for a, a healthy church, it begins with us taking an honest evaluation and asking, you know, how are we doing? How, and, you know, start with me first. How am I doing? And then look at it. And sometimes asking people, and I, I don't like to ask people that sometimes because sometimes they'll tell you. <laughs> it isn't always doing what you think it is or as good as you think it is in those ways. It's good to know your strengths and weaknesses. Greg Ernst, who um, some of you may have met Greg there. If you ever went to the Men for God conference at MBBI back a few years ago, uh, he is, uh, in 1990 and 91, he was, uh, he'd be, like, you know, a championship. He was the strongest man in Canada, two years running. And uh, Greg's a dairy farmer from uh, uh, Nova Scotia, uh, a gentle giant. He's aged now. He's 56 now. And, uh, but when he was in his prime back in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, he was setting world records. And actually, he set a world record in 1993 with the back lift, okay? And uh, he lifted two automobiles on a platform uh, using his back on his hands and knees and lifting up. And he actually lifted them off the ground on a platform, 5,340 pounds. You say, that's not possible. It's in the Guinness Book of World Records. It's on YouTube. If you ever Google it or whatever, you'll see the, the back lift that Greg Ernst did. It still hold, he still holds the record today. He spoke at our conference there one year. or I guess he actually provided music, that conference, but he, he shared. Uh, and he's, he and his, his sons there have great uh, voices, and they sang there for that conference. And I remember talking with him a bit, but he shared something that stood out to me and all of these years later. He said, you don't just go from, uh, you know, walk in and lift 5,380 pounds or 340 pounds, whatever it was. You have to train at that. He began when he was age 12, working with his dad on the farm. He began to lift rocks that nobody else could lift. Or, you know, he'd start with things he could lift, and then he'd work up to rocks that no one else could lift, you know. And his dad was like that, too. And he began to train just using things around the farm, and, and he did that, and he never used any enhancing you know, drugs or anything like that. He said, people that do that, they'll bulk up. They look really strong. And he says, they'll go lift things and break bones. They actually will break bones. Because the average person could not put 5,000 pounds on their back without every bone in your body going crunch. All right, Your body will actually build bone mass as you work up to it. And, and he said that. He said, you know, you have to know what you can lift. And know your weakness. And he started with weakness and built up and did that. He broke a thousand-year record by uh, carrying a uh, 400 and, I think it was, it was I don't know, 410-pound, 418-pound, I think, stone called the Hesifold Stone in Iceland. And it was a Viking record that had set it. And, and he was able to carry it 70 meters, this great big, four, you know, Wow. And he said, I could have gone further, but I just figured I broke the record, I dropped the stone. And the next year, a guy came and actually went further. <laughs> but I, I think of that, uh, and it's interesting because I found of the greatest qualities of Greg as I worked around him there during that weekend was he was a humble guy. And he knew his strengths and he knew his weaknesses. And the Lord had, had done that in his life on many occasions, uh, shown him his weaknesses in things. But sometimes as a Christian, I don't care how strong we might be or how many great tasks we've done or whatever, you know, large ministries around us, things like that. That is not necessarily the, 
the weaknesses. And God says through Paul here, he says, take note of your weakness. Know really how strong you are and where you are. That's an honest evaluation. Uh, we kind of need that, don't we? And sometimes, uh, like I said, our attitudes are, are like that. It also means this, that he says, as God has dealt to each one a, a measure of faith, and he, and he says, for as we have many members in one body, uh, what naturally comes out of a true heart of humility, and, and I say a true heart, not, not just somebody saying I'm a humble person or dressing humble or showing, putting on a show, but really being a humble person is, I think, great strength. And as the Lord says, and, uh, you, know, um, you know, if we, well, a number of things, you know, first, if uh, we will deny ourselves, you know, he will exalt us. That principle is found in many passages of scripture. Uh, he will lift us up. And I think that's, that's important, right, in doing that. Um, we live in a day and age where it seems like there are just certain tasks that they're, they're below me or below some, you know. I've appreciated those I've worked with over the years that are just willing to do just anything, you know. Sometimes it's pretty dirty work or menial tasks, and the world doesn't understand that, you know. It just doesn't. Sometimes uh, you see it today. Oh, a few weeks ago, I was at the Can-Am races there at the start and uh, uh, running radio for that and, and all that, and a bunch of politicians showed up. And, and there were really only a few politicians, but all their entourage showed up, you know. Everybody had to be there. Cause, and I, I didn't have any room to stand where they were. <laughs> and I'm like, and I went over this way. And I'm not, you know, they but that's kind of the way the world is. You know, we're going we're gonna to make everything just perfect, you know, and do this. And we move our entourage of people around us and everything. And, and uh, look at me, here I am, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that was the attitude of those that were there. I, I don't know their heart. I just know that's what typically people do. They, they elevate people into positions and do that. I think we need more people that are just willing to do anything, you know, and just show up and nobody even knows your title. Nobody even knows who you are and your background. Back in uh, January 30th, 1930, uh, John Stennis, he was a senator. He actually was the chairman of the Armed Forces Committee of the Senate. And he was coming back from a long day there and uh, drove into his driveway, stepped out of his vehicle. Two uh, men stepped out of the shadows and robbed him and shot him and left him with a gunshot wound to his chest. And, and he was uh, you know, critical at that point. They raced him off to the hospital and just a little while after he, he was uh, in the hospital and in, in surgery, of course, uh, a U.S. senator having been shot was a big deal, and uh, there were all kinds of reporters showing up and all kinds of people doing things. And this man had heard about, another man had heard about the, uh, uh, the circumstances of uh, John Stennis, and he showed up at the hospital, and he looked around, and he saw that the switchboard operator who was taking all these phone calls coming in was just overwhelmed. And so he sat down next to her. He asked quickly how to take phone calls, and she showed him, and, and he went to work. And he stayed there in that position taking phone calls all night, all through the next day into you know the morning, late morning hours. And finally, after all these hours, he stood up and he said, I, I really have to go now. And he grabbed his overcoat. And the lady who had been right next to him, she said, well, who are you anyways? And, and um, as he was... Uh, headed out, he, he said, oh, he said, my name is uh, Mark Hatfield. And uh, she said, oh, Mark Hatfield, are you Senator Mark Hatfield? He said, yes, Senator Mark Hatfield. 
He was a Republican, and by the way, the other guy, uh, John Stennis, was a very liberal Democrat, <laughs> and they, they got along very well, you know, in that. But I, I thought of that, you know, he didn't go in there to present himself. And the, the only reason we know about that story is because some of the reporters recognized him and were just flabbergasted that somebody, a U.S. senator, would sit down and take phone calls, you know, and help out when no one else even knew he was there for that. And... I'm not saying it has to be in that context, but you know what? Sometimes we just, we don't have to be a U.S. senator, and very few of us will ever be there. But listen, you can be wherever in life, and you say, hey, I'm more important than I really am, right? Or take an evaluation and say, where can I fit in the body of Christ? He says, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, you realize that each and every one of us has our place. That's an individual place. And we function together in that way. And that goes to the second part of that. We need faithful cooperation. It says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. And um, so you have this, this faithful cooperation, right? And uh, just read here to verse 5 also include that. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, individual members of one another. Uh, there's three passages there that Paul uses to talk about the giftings, and he uses the term body referring to um, the church, okay, made up of individual members. You have, I think it's 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. You have this passage here. Uh, there's more, too, that, that, are, that he uses. But when you get talking about that, you have... Um, the, the picture of a body, right? I mean, think of the human body. There are, there are parts that, that everybody sees. There's parts that people don't see. There's in, you know, parts on the inside, parts on the outside, but we're made up of lots of parts, but we are one body individually. Talking about the human body. And you know that if one little body part is out of sorts, it can affect the rest very quickly. And Paul uses that illustration and reminds each and every one of us that we are of one body in Christ. Each member, having been placed there by the grace of God, and it is all by the grace of God, and each one functioning differently. Uh, we've had this discussion lately on, on what is a, a church member, you know, and I, I say that because, you know, we have um, a church covenant here, we have uh, a membership role, sort of, in business meetings. I mean, there has to be someone who takes ownership of the, the business aspect of the church. But really, what makes up the member of the church? And the very basic thing is that, you know, are they functioning as a body part, right? Are they functioning? Is there life in it? Are they, you know, a member of the body of Christ? And if you're functioning as a member, I think really you're a member of, of the body in that way. Uh, I say that just because I know it's more complicated than that in, in business settings and stuff. But sometimes we just got to stop and say, how am I functioning in the body of Christ individually? Uh, there are some of us that do more public things here. And you say, well, you know, why they get to do that? Well, because that's the Lord gave me that gift or grace in that way. And it is by grace, because I could, certainly could not do it without His grace. And I say that, but it is no different in, in importance than someone that you don't see. And, you know, you come here and, and things are cleaned up and the bathrooms look good. And, you know, there's someone that uh, takes care of ordering the Sunday school material. And 
the, the Sunday school lessons that go on with the kids that sometimes nobody else really sees what goes on but a few kids, you know? But they're just as important as anybody else. And the function of that is just as important. Or those that give, and we're going to talk about some of these giftings that he mentions there, and all that is part of the body of Christ. Here Paul lists seven things as individuals that we can participate in. And elsewhere, if you look at it like 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, I think you come up with like 19 spiritual gifts if you want to look at all those. Some can be classified together, but here he just lays it out as seven kind of spiritual gifts that individually we have. So you have, you have uh, an honest evaluation, you have faithful cooperation together, but individual participation. Every single one who's in the body of Christ needs to function individually and and we look at that let me go on to verse six here he says having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us and that is true every gift that and i believe that every true believer in christ has at least one spiritual gift some have many i have not seen anybody or have read really anywhere that says you can have all all right and there are some gifts in the first century as paul is writing that i believe have ceased to operate as spiritual gifts particularly the sign gifts what we often talk about the word gift there it's the uh the word we get from charisma or charismatic okay and that word charismatic in modern times here has kind of tried to differentiate christians who practice sign gifts and and like speaking in tongues and healing services and those kind of things um and those that don't okay and the word charismatic is not a bad word, though. It's a Bible word, all right? And it basically means this, of, of grace, gifting in that way. And that's what God has done according to his grace. He's given that to us. And uh, I'm glad that, uh, uh, really, you could say that you are a charismatic Christian, okay? Hopefully, if you're exercising your gifts. They don't just go out and tell somebody that. They'll understand it a little differently. And actually, most people today don't understand that term. <laughs> all right, uh, But we uh, certainly understand it as the way the Lord reveals it here in the Bible. And in a biblical sense, it means that you have been given a spiritual gift. And there are some basic truths, as I mentioned, that every believer at least has one spiritual gift. Not, um, or a believer does not have all the gifts and the spiritual gift is for the service in the body of Christ, for his glory. And that's why, by grace, he gives those things. And that's why, as Paul says, so, says elsewhere, you know, um, it's why the, you know, the hand doesn't say, why am I not the head, or whatever. I'm paraphrasing there, but you know what I'm saying? You, you don't have that. You say, well, why can't I do that? Why is it that that person's like that? And that's not the way we look at it. We should be looking back and say, what am I particularly gifted in and what should I do? Now, by the way, um, and I remember at MBBI, when I arrived there my freshman year, I had been a believer about two years at that point in my life, a little over that. And uh, I had Mrs. Robbins' class on uh, the spiritual gifts. Uh, she, she did that, spiritual temperament, spiritual gifts, and it was just a study, and we didn't. she wasn't preaching over us or anything like that, and we went through things with that. And I remember um, one thing that she said in that. She said, you, and other teachers there said that, but she said to us, you have to try things sometimes to know where your gifts are. And uh, you do. Um, 
And there were a bunch of us sitting there thinking, I'll never be a preacher, you know. Uh, I had, I knew God was calling me to be a preacher, so I did know that in my heart, but I had come to that very, in a difficult way. The first time I was ever asked to teach, it was at a Sunday school in Aschaffenburg, Germany. Somebody asked me to fill in. I thought, how hard can that be? <laughs> oh boy. Next week I went home with my, my uh, head dragging, you know, right on the ground. And um, my roommate asked me, he said, how'd it go? I said, awful, <laughs> awful. I don't think I'll ever do that again, you know. And the Lord, though, used that experience to help me reevaluate, help me prepare more next time, all that kind of stuff. And, and eventually I realized, okay, Lord, you seem to have given me some gift to teaching, you know. Maybe not as good as others and maybe not as bad as some, but I'll tell you, it's of, of you, Lord, and to you be the glory in that if that's what you've given me. And there's other areas of ministry that I've tried out and I've miserably failed, all right? I'm not a great administrator. I think administration is a gift. And I'm, I'm deviating from the seven gifts that he's talking about here, but it sort of goes under ministry. I'm not. I, 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 sometimes the details escape me, okay? And uh, some of you probably, oh boy, I know that. But I'm thankful there are others that are, all right? And I've become a better administrator probably by just discipline more than anything. I don't feel very gifted in that area, but I, I, you know, I do it, and I come to it that way. Anyways, I'll move on, because he says this, let us use them. All right, did you see that? Let us use them. Uh, if you have a gift that someone else can benefit from, first and foremost, the Lord, because he's given these gifts to people so that he might get the glory and his name might be made something big of, if you set that on a shelf, so to speak, nobody benefits. Nobody. And sometimes we purposely put ourselves on the shelf and our gifts on the shelf. You know, our feelings come in the way or pride or whatever. We say, I'm not doing that again. I give up. And yet, maybe particularly gifted of God in a certain area. And so don't put yourself on a shelf somewhere. He begins with one, and I'll mention these. He says, uh, he mentions prophecy. He says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, the word prophecy is somewhat of a misunderstood word. Often people who think of prophecy, they think of only foretelling or foretelling something, as in the future events, some kind of psychic or whatever. That's not really what the, the word means here. It means like one who proclaims or foretells. And it is in, in the first century, the direct meaning of it, probably more so, was that, and again, the Word of God was being written out for the first time in the New Testament anyways. And you have uh, the Holy Spirit breathing His Word out through people like Paul and Peter and John and Luke, and you go right down through the list there, and others that also were being given direct revelation from God and told to pass that on. And they were really committing the, or their gift of prophecy to others. All right? Now, I believe the gift of prophecy is still available. It is not that the Lord is revealing new truths now, though I believe as the Word of God became complete, the book of Revelation ended, you know, the, the last of the New Testament books, that there was no more need to give new revelation, okay, in the sense of, of uh, divine biblical revelation. And instead... Somebody who prophesies today is foretelling what God has said according to his word. So really, the, the preaching ministry that goes on, particularly, it's not, it can be distinguished, but the foretelling of God's word 
in a way that you know it, it confronts people and everything else is that practice i believe of the gift of prophecy as it's known today and I, i'm careful i don't use the term like i'm a prophet okay or someone else is a prophet because the christians and the world misunderstand it they really do uh, the next one here, as he talks about, he goes on, he says, or, or ministry, or you might have a translation that says, or serving. And let us use it in our ministering, our serving, okay? And the root word of that is that idea of someone who waits on tables. Um, it is the very first issue that comes up in the new church. Well, it's not really, it's rooted in that. When you think of Day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved, and then a little bit later, some more get saved and all that. And all of a sudden, you have uh, the apostles who are overloaded with the needs of people. In their ministry, their gift was the foretelling of God's word and revealing it to the people. And the, you come to Acts chapter 6, and you have the choosing of deacons, okay? People who could come and help, in that case, minister to widows, and take up some of those opportunities in the church that were very time-consuming and very necessary, but very time-consuming. But the apostles weren't called to that ministry. They were called instead to the ministry of the Word of God, of preaching and teaching. And so therefore they appointed men, and they were spiritual men, and they're listed there in Acts 6, and they were men that were able to minister. And the word for deacon there means one who kicks up dust. And it means that he's active, okay? That's the root word of it, anyways. And it, it carries the idea in the Greek mind would be a person who serves, a minister. And, and that's kind of the word that is used there, being willing to serve, however. And why, you know, not just to, to create dust, but to instead to glorify Christ in our service. I'm thankful for many of you who work behind the scenes and you do that, you do it without seeking the limelight or some reward here. And I'm just thankful that many I know, and I could, uh, if I even tried to list all the ones I know in my life that have affected me or I've, they've ministered to me or I've seen minister to others, I would miss out on many because there's so many. A lot of them will quietly go about their business and, and uh, just find ways of helping others. And I'm thankful for that. Then it says, he who teaches in teaching. Now, this is a little different. It's a different word uh, from the word like for prophecy and even from preaching. Uh, a teacher is one who's able to, and it's, I think, one of the most important spiritual gifts because there's somebody in, in the context of the body of Christ, okay, um, who's able to take the word of God and explain it clearly to others. And to cause them to learn. And I really believe some of the most gifted teachers that I've ever uh, had the opportunity to sit under in their own ministries or, or others are those that necessarily they aren't really dynamic speakers always or anything like that. Sometimes they don't even have much of a, a preaching voice, if you want to call that. And yet they're, the I think, the heart of the church. They really are the heart of the ministry because they're able to take... Uh, the word of God and explain it in ways that no one else can do and that's a gift of God it really is and I'm thankful for those in my life who did who took the time to do that and you know I, I think of that there's a big difference uh, you know preaching and I I'm not 
trying to make one gift sound better than the other. But I'm thankful for those that can come in and they can stir up. Maybe it's just one or two points or three points. You always have to be three points, right? But you can just stir up a congregation with a, with a teaching, you know, with a preaching message and kind of get them, you know, focused on something. And again, comparing that though, you can do that so so much, and then you've got to say, well, where, where's the substance behind it? Like the long-term, in-depth stuff. A teacher will take you further and bring you in. Back in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it actually talks about teaching your children and whole oh, that whole aspect of ministry, whether it be in the home, which is part of the body of Christ, right? Individuals make up the home also. Homes and home life make up a, a church. Um, that's really where a lot of that goes on too. And I believe that uh, there are many who have that gift and you won't know unless you try, right? We'll go to the last verse here. He who exhorts in exhortation. Now the word to exhort, it means one who encourages. Um, they're the go-getters who stand on the sideline and say, I say go-getters, they're the ones who encourage you to be a go-getter. All right, they exhort you to continue on. And exhortation, the English word, you know, can mean more. All right, than that. But backing up here in the understanding, what I've come up with here in the Greek, it, it is those who um, continue to encourage people to stay in the race. You know, uh, your cheering squad. <laughs> Those who love to get those cards that are out there that Liz has put together and, and others and, and say, I'm going to bless somebody with one of these this week and write a letter or make a phone call or show up somewhere and just encourage someone who's maybe needs some encouragement, right? And there's lots of people that do that. I'm thankful for them. And by the way, I'm thankful for them because, you know, sometimes... <laughs> One of the blessings of being a pastor and being up front a lot and all that is that I get to talk to people and then afterwards sometimes they say, oh, that was a good message or, you know, that really spoke to my heart today and all that. And I always try to point that heavenward. I don't want that to come here because, you know, I think of it this way. Someone, um, it was one of Corey Ten Boone's illustrations. She talked about a well-known evangelist who came to Europe and as he was going around, the churches were really making a lot of fanfare about it and they were, you know, make sure his accommodations were taken care of, all this stuff. And, and somebody asked him, don't you think that they're doing a little bit too much, you know, making too much of you? And he said, well, he said, I, I look at myself like the donkey that carried the Lord into Jerusalem. You know, they spread their garments before the donkey and the donkey walked on those same garments. But the donkey always knew that it really wasn't about him. It was about the Lord who was riding on him. And he, he said, when they do that, he says, I just am thankful they're making something of the Lord. And he really meant it, you know. And I think sometimes that's the way it is. Uh, we can give our compliments to man and women or whatever. And, but I hope it, it's channeled to the Lord ultimately, right? But there are those that we need that too. Encouragement. Nothing blesses my heart more than to have a, a believer a couple days later or whatever say, you know, I really listened to you the other day. I'm like, really? You know, I didn't think anybody listened to me, but they, they, they did, you know? And, and I'm like, okay, good. Praise God. And when you hear that, you know, people take, take that, and that's an encouragement. It keeps us going, right, and doing that. He goes on, he says, and he who gives with liberality. Uh, the word liberal there 
it means just to give and to give, as Paul puts it elsewhere, cheerfully. To give with the expectation that you're just doing it as a gift to God. And there's a whole message we could talk about giving. And I'm, I'm thankful for those who are givers. Not only here in this ministry, but they just are givers. They're givers of their time. But in particular, the money issue is what's at the point that Paul's making. Those that give financially or give of their resources to, to further something. And they give generously. They give, really, the word means single-mindedly. And uh, that's how we need to give. With a purpose of how can this further the gospel? How can this further the Lord's cause uh, to bless the church or however it is? And hopefully on the other end of that, there's good stewardship of those things, right? Somebody's not just spending it erratically or whatever, but it's being used appropriately. There's two sides of that. And we need to have that kind of mindset to give to the Lord and not to man. I say I, I have had people in the past, I, I don't have anybody in mind here or anything, but uh, that have given with lots of strings attached, right? Uh, years and years ago when we were first, um, one, I can't remember which child it was, probably it was uh, one of our children, Laura, probably our oldest. We had someone come from the church and they gave a bunch of baby clothes, right? And they said, they're yours. Okay, great. You know. Well, a couple of years later, they came looking for them. Okay, They wanted them back. And we didn't know about that. Well, we had given them away somewhere else, you know. And uh, I t- I, we told her, oh, we're so sorry, but, you know, we don't have those anymore. Uh, she, she outgrew those a long time ago, and they've been passed on. And some probably had been thrown out because they wore out and things like that. And, and what that was, and, and I think the person was kind of offended that we had d- done that. And I, I thought, well, you told us you gave it to us, you know. And, but you gave with strings attached. And sometimes people give with strings attached. You don't know the strings are there. Okay, Come back later and say, where did my money go? You know, where, where did, you know, didn't it get to, why did you do that? Or why did you do this? And sometimes the idea here is you give and you say, Lord, it's for you. All right? Those people that spend it on the other side, they're accountable too. And there should be accountability. I'm not saying don't ask questions about things. But be careful with that, okay? How do you give? You give to the Lord as a cheerful giver, Paul says elsewhere. And then he says leadership, right? He who leads with diligence. The word for leadership, it means, or lead, it means to stand in front, all right? Uh-oh, that's me. I'm standing in front today. But it's not just a pastor necessarily. There are, we have multiple leaders here, okay? And leaders that are in public areas and people that lead in other ways but a leader is one who is able to stand out in front of the group and and again this is a gift the lord gives and he's able to use that in the context of the body of christ and it's so that people will have direction corporately okay that we move on forward one of the first rules in leadership is they say look behind you make sure people are following all right and uh Sometimes we, we lead or think we have the gift of leadership and don't, you know. Uh, years ago, we had a, a missionary who was coming in to the field, and I, was, I went to pick him up. His family was flying in, and he got off the airplane. I, I met him as he came out of customs, and, and he walked right past me. He says, good to see you and all that, and he started out for the parking lot. Now, he didn't know what vehicle I was driving. He didn't know 
where I was parked. He didn't even, this was like, he hadn't even been in the country before, you know, for a long time. And his poor family, they're dragging their suitcases and they're following. And I stopped, I said, hey, do you know where you're going? No, but he kept on going. <laughs> it's like, and he was kind of like that. He's just like, he would lead by going, but he didn't always stop to think, first of all, do I know where I'm going? And are there people following me, okay? Because if you don't know where you're going and if people are following you, you're going to mess them up and yourself up, you know, in doing that. One of the rules of leadership, make sure you know where you're going and make sure there's people that are following you, okay? Or else you're not leading in that way. And really, this is a, a gift that um, should uh, people should work, you know, make their work, uh, you know, come together in a synergy kind of effect. And then as Paul writes here, his last thing, he says, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And mercy is a gift. Mercy. We need more of that. Um, thankful for those people in my life who've shown me mercy when I didn't deserve it. Uh, those that show others mercy. You know why? Because probably that gift, and it's, that's more of a, a character gift that is seen from the heart out, right? It's a, really a demonstration of God who is merciful. Remember Jonah this morning, one of those verses that Roland read, and Jonah's arguing with God, but he says, I know you are a merciful and gracious God, right? Jonah knew that. At the heart of the Lord is grace, that's the gifts, right? But the extent of mercy that he gives to people. And I think there's a proper order in these gifts. He, I think he leaves the last as the one that really ties it together. And I do think that that's a characteristic of the Lord and probably a gift that more people have than they realize. But uh, do you show mercy to people? You know, as you do that, you are actually exalting Christ and part of the body of Christ in that. How healthy are you and how healthy is the church? That's the question. Hopefully we're healthy. We need to take an honest evaluation. We have to have faithful cooperation, right? And individual participation and ultimately uh probably we need to be like the remember the publican not the republican but the publican okay who beat his chest and he said lord have mercy on me a sinner that man knew more about his position before the lord and who the lord was than that pharisee who stood there and said thank you i'm not like that that publican you know that man went away justified Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and we thank you for what Paul laid out so clearly to us here in this text. And we pray that, Lord, we would be a people that would seek to take a, a real evaluation of ourselves and how that plays out in our church and help us to cooperate, Lord, together and to participate where we can. And thank you for your marvelous gifting. And uh, it all, it's all there for the furtherance of your work, your gospel, for your name. And Lord, just help us to be merciful with one another and with those outside the body of Christ as well. That they too could understand what you've given to us. And uh, we'd be able to present Christ to them in that way. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.